0: all right there we go so this is our sunday afternoon sangha call for the uk it's in the morning um cat's actually here on the porch with me um and carl you were making the point about um uh, the the telephone cords or the uh headphone cords that are uh use the the curly uh stuff like this And you were talking about how um, it's hard to get it untangled sometimes. And as you can see, for me, it just pulls right apart. There's nothing to it. In the old days, telephones, you know, the kind of telephones that had a a receiver like this, and there was a cord that goes down, and some of those would be very, very long and have these curly cords um, in it and that I have been around phones in businesses and whatnot that looked like it was a complete mess. And there's an easy way to do it, and that is is that you hold it by the cord and just let the phone dangle. And what it'll start to do is unwind itself, let the gravity kind of do it for you. And this is kind of an analogy of how the mind gets all tangled up like that. And that if we try to untangle it the way that you're talking about, it can sometimes make it worse. Okay, so what we're talking about here is actually um, that, that we're trying to figure things out. We want to know that that, that desire to know is uh, built into us in instinct, because if we... Uh, know whether something is dangerous or not, will know how to behave around it. And so there's an instinctual component that has that quality of the self-preservation. But in our society we really, really take and put a lot of work into that so that the kids when they're growing up are put under pressure to know. And so when we get into the practice of Anapanasati and start doing some meditation, that desire to know comes in. And that's why we're madly trying to untangle it is because we want to know. We don't like it when when we don't know. And so we put a lot of effort into it to where the really easy way to do it is just to let things dangle watch what's going on, maybe let it roll around, spin around a little bit, and it'll untangle itself. So the mind will actually kind of do that too. And the pulling on it, like the gravity that is pulling on that uh, phone uh, handset, uh, does all the work for us, so true, we can say that right noble effort is just to let things kind of unwind all by themselves. And that the average beginning meditator puts a lot of work into trying to straighten that out. Rather than merely just cutting right through it. Um, There is the story of the Gordian knot. This is a very, very ancient story, probably 3000 years old or so, and that there was a rope that it was all tied up in a very very big fancy knot and that everybody uh who would try to unravel that thing and nobody was able to unravel it until Gordian came by and he took his sword out and he cut the knot with the sword that unraveled that knot pretty well okay so this is the kind of way that now we can say that well where do The idea is that we really don't have to unravel that, that knot. We don't have to take it apart that way. Then in fact, we can cut right through it immediately. And the way that we can say that in practice of Anapanasati is to just drop it, to just cut it loose, to let it go all by itself. It'll unravel itself on its own. But the important thing for us in the practice is to put the right effort in it to gladden the mind so never mind what it was that um uh, problem that i was trying to solve and figure out put all of that work into it maybe it's this maybe it's that and all of that it's just to say hey i don't have to solve that problem right now we just cut right through it it's not really an, uh, a problem uh until we thought it was and now we're making it a problem When in fact, there was no problem to it ever. So, the practice then is not trying to figure things out. That's an amazing point because a lot of people think that what practice of meditation is all about is to figure things out. And we're not here to figure things out. We're here to observe instead. There's not much of figuring to it. In fact, figuring is the same thing as cogitation. Conceptualization and um, whatnot with with the mind that way. And the better thing to, to do is to say, Oh, I don't have to have that. I don't need it right now. I don't have to unravel that telephone cord. Just leave it the way that it is. And so, um, if you also understand that um, due to the fact that most people are right handed, they tend to wrap the cords in a certain way. That if a left handed person is using the telephone often, he will keep it naturally unraveled and unmessed up because the right-handed people keep turning the phone in the same circle direction and the left-handed person is turning it in, in an opposite direction, kind of unraveling the thing. And so that's the way that, uh, uh, to do it is to just let the thing dangle, that telephone just dangle, and it will kind of unwrap itself because it was wrapped up in a certain way. And the mind is exactly that way too that it will unravel itself when we stop spinning in a certain direction and start spinning in the opposite direction. Now, what does this mean is is that normally when we're spinning, we're spinning in an unwholesome direction. Whether it's clockwise or counterclockwise, doesn't matter. That's depending upon the position. But when we wrap things in one way, they tend to get all in a ball. And so when we unravel it or go in the other direction with wholesome thoughts, then things just kind of unravel by themselves. So we really don't have to put our time and effort into unraveling things or trying to figure them out. Better still, just cut it through it, just to drop it. Say, that's not a problem that I have to solve right now. And this is the way to handle it because the human mind is such that we'll find all kinds of things that need to be unraveled the mind is often filled with doubt and that in fact um, that unraveling it when we're sitting in meditation trying to unravel it the reason for it is is because we think that we'll be better off if we can get it unraveled not recognizing it that we're not very well off while we're trying to unravel it That we're creating the problem by trying to unravel things. We don't need to unravel it. We could just forget all about it, leave it the way that it is.
1: So, Martin, good to see you. Thanks for joining. Okay, Hi, Carl, Mar- go ahead. Thank you, Damato. Hi. Hi, everybody.
0: Everything is good. <laughs> Great. Carl just asked an easy question. That, that was an easy answer. Took only 10 minutes to answer. Uh, Don't bother I, I, unraveling it. Go ahead, Carl. I was
2: going the direction as well as far as like seeing how the mind gets tangled up in first place because I was using an analogy, if you put your headphones like the, the air, earbuds like kids would have, you would put them in your pocket and you're not looking, they get tangled up throughout the day because you're not looking at what's going on. So mm-hmm. the, getting caught up in that entanglement is what happens to majority of people. But I was seeing my mind rising. My mind, my, my thoughts are just coming up and they're trying to tangle me up throughout, distract me from the present moment constantly by trying to tangle me up into that state of entanglement, mm-hmm. which was kind of pretty fascinating because it, this this whole analogy kind of clicked is like, I don't have to get tangled up in the first place. I don't have to entangle, I don't have to untangle anything, but because I don't have to get tangled up in the first place at all.
0: Right. Well, there's another way of looking at it, and that is, is that most of the tangles that we find are actually really old. That things got tangled up a long time ago, and that there's no reason to try to untangle it, rather just drop it. Those old things, we don't need to unravel it, we don't need to understand it. That in fact, um, an example of what we're talking about now would be the concept of um, uh, psychological archeology. span A lot of psychologists and psychiatrists, they want the plant to talk about their childhood and that kind of thing with the idea that, oh, if we can find out how the tangle got started in the first place, then it will be easier to untangle it. And the Buddha says, no, that's not correct. That in fact, we don't need to know the first cause. What we need to see is what's happening right now. And basically what's happening right now is not a tangle. What's happening right now is is that I'm stuck in trying to untangle it. There's a difference between things being tangled up versus being caught up in trying to untangle it. And so here's where the real practice comes in, is is that, hey, we don't have to untangle it.
1: Hello, Daniel.
0: We're talking about the tangles of the mind and how the fact that we don't have to untangle things.
1: I don't hear you. Ah, Sorry,
3: I was muted, but I uh, I was saying my headphone, I'm trying to connect them, but you can uh, go on without me. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: So we could also go so far as to say that when we're trying to untangle things, this is the same thing as the hindrance of restless and worry. And it has a sister component of doubt. The doubt comes in is, oh, I think I need to know this in order to be happy. And then we get in trying to figure it out, trying to untangle that stuff. You know, a lot of people will do that with the praise of, well, why did I do that? Why do I do those things? And then we try to figure out why we do those things and we get lost in those untangling. And the right way to practice instead is never mind. I don't have to untangle that I could be happy while that thing is all tangled up. I can sit down beside it and just be happy. I don't have to untangle it at all. Which leads me into the story that my dad taught me. One of the things that I remember really well about him. He was actually a um, he worked really hard. He did a lot of meter reading and pipe laying and that kind of stuff, a very active uh, blue collar kind of job, and yet he was the one who said work. I'm not afraid of work. I can lay down beside work and go to sleep. I'm not afraid of it at all. Okay. so this is the way that we need to start thinking about it is, is that we don't have to put in all of the work of figuring things out. We can leave it undone it's not dangerous and just relax we don't have to put in that work of figuring it out what we need to do instead is to figure out how to be happy and that's easy enough all we have to do is stop trying to figure stuff out and just let it be undone let it, let it be a mess it's okay I can be happy while there's a mess I don't have to untangle it Even if that mess is in the mind, I don't have to untangle that. I don't have to figure myself out. That in fact, uh, um, this is several points about that that are in the sutras. The one that I'm thinking about now is the Saba Asava Sutta, where people get into the Buddha's word for it that we're using for tangle. He calls it a thicket of views. The kind of views, the thicket of views would be like, who am I? What am I? What was I in the past? How did the past get here? What's in the future? Who am I in now that's going to be in the future, et cetera, like that? Or we try to unravel the the concept that um, uh, the favorite one, by the way, that the Western Buddhist is, is trying to figure out the knot of anatta. Okay, does the self see self as self? Or does the self see self as no self? Or does no self see no self as self? Or does no self see no self as no self, etc.? And you could get all kinds of twisted up, all kinds of questions that don't need to be answered. That are only, um, let's say intellectual questions that we spend a lot of time on that are kind of useless. Here we could just be happy instead of trying to figure out who I am. Then in fact, you probably never will figure out who you are because you're a moving target. The example that I would give is just sit down, maybe everybody today after the talk, sit down and write down everything that you know about yourself that's true. And then next week, do that exercise again And then the third week, compare those first two and recognize that you're not the same. That over that course of the week, even who you think you are has changed. Everything's up to change. And if we try to straighten everything out, that's just a lot of work. And we're not ever going to straighten anything out. Better just to be happy the way things are. Which means we don't have to figure it out. That's back to that idea of the Gordian knot is just, just cut it in half. Just drop it. We don't need it. So Carl, does that answer your question?
2: Oh yeah. The, 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 <laughs> the question is <laughs> the question doesn't even arise anymore, yeah, yeah.
0: I'm sorry, did you say that again?
2: I said the question does, does not even like come up to my mind. I, I, I can see it. I can see it. I can see the, the. I can see it clearly.
0: Right, but those hindrances are persistent and we have to see the hindrances hindrances so that we can throw them right out. Doubt is a major hindrance. Am I doing it right, Daddy? Am I supposed to do? Uh, a count of four on the in-breath or a count of five on the in-breath. I mean, we can just get all bone stuff about how we're supposed to do things exactly right according to some standards or some set of rules. Um, and the better thing to do
2: is just just to play with it. Well, that's just trying to figure out again. Should I count to four or should I take this breath or should I do this? That's just like you trying to figure out like another thing, like trying forgot meditation, which is Again, you're playing a game on yourself,
0: Mm -hmm. right? We're making troubles trying to answer questions that we don't need the answer to that. Everybody knows what it is to take a deep breath and just relax. Everybody knows how it is to relax. We just don't relax often enough because we're too busy trying to figure things out. And so now we've got to figure out how to relax. Well, we don't have to figure it out. We just relax. We don't have to figure out anything. We can just drop all of those doubts, all of those worries, recognize that that's what's preventing me from being happy. And then I said, wow, I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to figure out who I am. I don't have to figure out what is self and no self. I don't have to figure anything out. I can just simply relax and be happy. Because all of that figuring out is a hindrance. And not only that, but if we bind to if we actually did wind up figuring it out, we wouldn't get the kind of satisfaction that we could if we just dropped it. Because now we still have the doubt. Well, did I figure it out right? And there's no end to second guessing. Which leads to another point is is that in our civilization in our society, the kids are taught to guess, and a much better way is is that if you are unsure to figure out that you're unsure and be satisfied that you don't know that you're unsure this is why ignorance is actually they call it uh the the higher fetters there's ten five of the lower fetters and five of the higher fetters. Ignorance is the last item on the list, not necessarily in chronological order, but it's the last on the list in the sense that we eventually get to the point that we can be comfortable and satisfied, even though we have very limited knowledge. It's okay to be ignorant about so many things because I'm not ignorant about the things that I actually need. I've got enough of that knowledge. What knowledge do I need? The knowledge to be happy. That's all the knowledge that I need, is the knowledge to just drop all those problems and just sit and enjoy life. Be in the present moment without any problems or worries. And so we don't have to figure things out, we don't have to create a thicket of views. We can just recognize all of those kind of things are dukkha. All of those kind of things are hindrances. And we say, I don't need that. I can just throw it out. It just be happy instead. I don't have to
1: untangle anything.
0: That we want to untangle it. We want to know we want that knowledge of where things come from. And we're not ever going to figure out where everything comes from. It doesn't even matter. We can be happy without that knowledge. And we will be miserable if we have to have it, because we'll never figure it out. So that comes all the way back to that one point about enough. You already have enough to be happy. You have the ability to remember, to look at the dukkha, see what it is, Take the effort to change it, and then congratulate yourself. That's the only four things that you need to know. We don't even need to know the entire Eightfold Noble Path. Just four points of the Eightfold Noble Path is enough. So does anybody have any questions about this? I mean, this is a whole teaching of the Dhamma, and look, it doesn't take but about 10, 20 minutes to talk about it in this video. That's all there is to it
2: i think once you have like good uh, good ways of connecting it as, as as you do like with analogies then it becomes very simple to teach doesn't it
0: <laughs> uh-huh. i see that daniel has left maybe he's coming back in oh that's why the screen is flashing back and forth
1: yeah
3: for some reason my uh my camera keeps stripping the application but uh, i do have a question all right um is this how you have always practiced under buddha dasa biku uh under buddha dasa or have you, as your style of practice changed
0: over the years oh for sure yes i started out in psychology in Ann Arbor, michigan University of Michigan, um, and um, it was basically um, most of the students um, were uh, in psychiatric nursing. That University of Michigan had a big psychiatric nursing thing. They had their own state hospital, Ypsilanti State Hospital, close by. So that's where it all started. And from there, um, I found that Muktananda had an ashram. Way, way back when, you know, in the middle seventies, Muktananda had an ashram in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So I stayed there. I stayed in the dorm. I also uh, stayed in my van during the better part of the weather, but that's what led me by 1976 to go to India. And so I left, I was actually um, teaching college. And because of that, I had the summers off. So I spent a summer in India and then another summer and then another summer until I was spending a lot of time in India.
3: You have so many jobs engineer, computer programmer, teacher. Psychologist. Well, what do I miss?
0: <laughs> well, that's what happens when you get old. You've got a long past.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that um, it was from there. Basically, I was interested in two things in India. One, in fact, they work together and that is, is what is meditation and what's the, uh, the uses and properties of it. And the other one was magical powers. I wasn't so much interested in rebirth and reincarnation, but you had an awful lot of swamis who could sit in the midair. They had an awful lot of swamis who could generate uh, Rolls Royce's and not Rolls Rolls, Royce's, Osho. They say he had 95. I don't know whether he got them magically or whether he stole them. Um, (laughs) There's another guy, uh, Satya Saibaba in Bangalore, who would uh, manifest Rolex watches. Until I came to understand that he manifested the same Rolex watch to the same guy in a big ceremony every time. The guy actually owned the Rolex. He was the only one who knew that it was all a scam. Everybody else was so impressed when Sai Baba would come up with yet another Rolex. Another thing that he would do is he would take ash um, out of a fire and turn it into a paste and then roll them into small uh, balls like the shape of a grain of rice and then lodge them between his fingers and then while he was doing all of his magical ceremonies or whatnot, he would rub that stuff and get it all into a ball and then he would poof like that and spread holy ash all over half a dozen young um, uh, Indian girls and they would all giggle because they thought that it was magic. Um, so that was one thing and I did travel around. I mean everybody who was famous enough got a visit from me. So I went to uh, uh, Ama in Kerala and um, mother somebody or another in Pondicherry and um, uh, Satya Sai Baba. But the only place that I didn't really get to was Dhamma Salah but I was kind of on the way there when I stopped and um, I was staying in Bodgaya. I had finally because of Gawanka changed out of the Hindu magical all of that kind of stuff into actual the teachings of the Buddha. And Goenka uh, was the first teacher. But then I I kind of began to figure out that he, he was he, there was something missing. There, this is not enough. There's something missing here. And so I left and I was staying then in Bodh Gaya when I met a monk that was from Thailand. In fact, he was from Wat Pananachat. And he was mm-hmm. the one that basically not Wat Pananachat. Sorry, Wat Chulapatan in Bangkok. Uh, who was uh, the abbot of, of Wat Chulapatan? was a very, very close friend of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Now, Wat Chula a huge Wat in Bangkok, so this guy was very, very famous, but he always saw himself as a student of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. So uh, from, uh, from there, I went to Wat Suan Mok. But I had a lot of teachers. I had with Gawanka and Muktananda and uh, I I wouldn't say that I was a student of of many of the others. I just stayed long enough to recognize that nope, this is not what I'm looking for. Sort of like the Buddha. He had one thing in mind, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, and he went to a whole lot of different teachers and whatever they were taught, it would not come down to that this is the end of suffering that even the the guys who were practicing meditation in the high jhanas and you know neither uh perception or non-perception and nothingness and uh uh, all of that kind of stuff they did that before the buddha became enlightened he was doing that kind of stuff and it wasn't satisfying why because when the guys would come out of those jhana states they would go right back into the hindrances This is when he found out that all the real point is, is that we have to develop the first jhana to the point that we can stay in it. This is why it needs to be sustained and sustained and sustained. And yet all the Westerners, when they hear about Buddhism and they hear about all of these jhanas, wow, they get quite a list of things that they want. Oh, I want jhana, Oh, I want to see magic. Oh, I want to have spiritual powers. Oh, I want to be a sodapan. Oh, I want to be an Arahat. Oh, I want, I want, I want, I want Nibbana. And all of that desire is preventing them from being happy. They think that they'll be happy when they get any of that stuff, but in fact, they don't have it. They're not happy. And so they're actually not developing... The first jhana, because the first jhana is don't worry, be happy. Don't try to entangle any knots. You don't need to entangle. Oh, hello, DJ. Wow. Hello. So, does anybody else have a question? I think that that's enough on old history. Yeah, go ahead, Daniel.
3: Uh, my question was more about uh your time under buddhadasa like has your pra- uh, your style of practice changed under under buddhadasa because he was uh, um still pra- practicing one co- uh, one point of concentration up until somewhere in the in the 1980s and i was wondering like your practice seems to differ a bit from Buddha Dasa. So did you develop it more or less on your own or how did it come to be?
0: Well, I would say that mostly. Though I did spend quite a lot of time with Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, it was almost always arranged by Achan Po. That he would find a time when Bhikkhu Buddhadasa didn't have anything and then he would be like a matchmaker and he or the secretary to make the appointments. But most of the training that I got was from Achan Po himself. And just being around him was the training with many, many tiny little things like he was very very good at sneaking up on me i don't use the word sneaking up correctly because he wasn't sneaky he just would walk up to me while i wasn't paying attention it surprised me okay this is this is actually an excellent training tool but westerners don't have it and uh, they don't have the master around to be able to do it. Here's an example of that would be that I, Achan uh, Po, would stand outside of my kuti, either on the path or in the front yard, if it had a front yard, and just stand there and wait for me to figure out that I need to check up on what's happening. That was a great deal of be here now. Okay. And so I began to start watching for him so that I'd know when he would show up. And sometimes he would come up when I was not in the cootie, um, that I would be out, you know, ceremonies and whatnot like that. And then he would sneak up right behind me and say something and then trot along off. He didn't have good English. But he sure knew how to tell, ta- he was quite a Zen master with his Zen stick. But his Zen stick was just a couple of words. He'd come right up behind me and he'd say something and that would wake me right up. Come into the present moment. And he had two things that he would say on a regular basis. One was, not sure. He'd just come up and say, not sure. Not sure. Okay. Which is actually his teaching, doing those two little words over and over and over again, not sure, not sure, was actually the basis of today's talk in the beginning of it. Right? Not sure. What does that mean? It means we don't have to unravel all of that stuff. We can just leave it unraveled. I'm not sure about it. So what? I don't have to fix it. I don't have to figure it out. I can leave myself in the state of, I don't know. Isn't that marvelous? But you see, most of us in the Western tradition, when we don't know something, we feel bad because we're supposed to know it. Look how many years you spend in school to where you were expected to know stuff. And now you're in the foreign land and every, you don't know anything but that's marvelous, that's not a disaster. The next thing that he would say to me often was ta-ta-ta, which is the Pali word for be here now, wakey-wakey, be in the present moment. And and he would just come by and just say that. There was another occasion that I remember quite um, well there is a particular kind of uh, hornet or a yellow jacket or wasp that is huge big dude about three or four times the size of an ordinary hornet it's got black and yellow markings so I think you would call it like a yellow jacket but they're about this big got a wingspan on them but I mean when those things are flying they make a ruckus in the air these are big dudes and here one of them, while I was standing with a Po out in the woods, one of those things landed in the top of his head over on the left-hand side, right in the top. And that thing started crawling around while he was continuing to talk. He had quite a focus of mind. And he was testing me with that. I don't know if he'd have been off in the woods by himself with that um, wasp what he would have done to it. But with me, he let it crawl all over his face. (laughs) Well, not completely all over his face. It did come down to the left eyebrow down in this area. And that's when I made my move, which was only just a gesture, just raising my hand. And he was ready for it because he put his hand out. I mean, it was he was really fast about that. He was kind of anticipating that I would do something about that wasp, and he wasn't about to let me do it. And, th- and that that those are the kind of things that are split second. They happen really, really fast, and there's a very good, deep teaching in there. And this was the kind of teaching that Aon Poe was. Now, he did know suttas, and in fact, I checked him out on that, and uh, he does know them by the the Pali word. He's much better with that than I was, but he doesn't talk about the suttas at all. Dasa does. But he he's more of a Zen master, the way that he behaved. And his stick that I got hit with so much was just a word here and there.
1: So, and uh,
3: the, the gladdening of the mind, like um, as, as Bhikkhu Buddha, uh, Buddha Dasa, what, what did he say about that? Because I've read the books and the description is very limited. It's basically like force your mind to be happy, like do anything to make your mind happy, and uh, but it doesn't say much beyond that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I heard him say it. I got it. And now that's what I talk about to the students. Very, very rarely do I ever find uh, something that Bhikkhu Dasa has said recently, and I would disagree with it. I would go so far as to say that if you ever hear anything that I say that disagrees with Bhikkhu Dasa, go with Bhikkhu Dasa until you figure out that he and I are actually saying the same thing.
1: <laughs> well, actually, uh, the
3: one point is concentration,
1: you, uh, he never really
3: stepped away from that, right?
1: Uh, say
0: again? Um,
3: that he never really Stepped away from the one-pointed concentration for the jhanas. We are still using the old or the old the Visuddhimaga, Visuddhimaga jhanas like the absorption jhanas.
0: Well, remember when I just told the story about the monk that I met in Bodh Gaya who was from what Chulapatan? He did some very strange things. One of the things that he did was that he when he uh, saw me one time I was in the room. He came into my uh, quarters there at the Wat, and here I am reading the Basu Maga, holding it in my hand. And um, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I do know that he immediately took it out of my hand and threw it across the room onto the bed, which monks don't mm-hmm. take things out of people's hands so this was definitely a dhamma lesson to take that book out of my hand and throw it across the room to land on the bed uh i don't think the book itself i've still got that same book here and uh it's not too much worse for the wearer for what he did he didn't hurt it or damage the book but that's when he kind of insisted that i got to go to Thailand. i've got to go meet viku Dasa. well you see What I have come to understand is, is that though Bhikkhu Dasa in his early times, he, like all of the other monks, were very much into the Vasudhimagga. That, in fact, um, in his first book on Anapanasati, he takes a lot of the stuff in there, um, in his writing, he took that out of the Vasudhimagga. And so over a period of years, Bhikkhu Dasa became more and more let's say completely knowledgeable about what was in the vasudhimagga and recognize that it just wasn't right there's something askew about everything there and that's been known for centuries in fact one of the old arguments was is that um uh, uh buddha gosa the the monk who did that was a wise fool in other words he never practiced he didn't know anything all he did was Gather data and gather information from all kinds of places and put it into a book. I would say that that's the way that most books are written in the West, anyway, is they just go get stuff all over the place, cram it into a book, and publish it. Well, guess what? There is more to the story in the sense that knowing that um, uh, Buddhaghosa's background and knowing some of the other literature it looks like that he did know what he was doing and that what he was doing was subterfuge he actually intended to ruin buddhism by bringing in all of that magic and all of that other stuff and obscure the real teachings of the buddha and as bhikkhu buddha Dasa figured that out more and more and more he changed to the point that uh, when he was very old, very late in life, one of the things that he was quite famous for saying was is that you can take the Vasudhimagga and all of that stuff and the Abhidhamma and throw it into the ocean. And Buddha would, Buddhism would be better off without it. Buddhism would be better off without the Abhidhamma. It'd be better off without the Vasudhi Maga. But in that regard the way that he taught anapanasati he continued to teach anapanasati the way that he had practiced it through the vasudhi Maga, so that even the later students get hung up on that issue about the nose tip but in the actual uh, uh, information there and i had conversation with bhikkhu buddhadasa about this was is that let's go with the anapanasati sutra Let's go with the actual suttas, because there it says the long breath, the short breath, the in breath, the out breath, and then examining the body and relaxing the body. This is the first quadrant, uh, first four of the Anapanasati Sutta, no nose tip mentioned anywhere. But in the time of the writing of the Vasudhimaga, there was another word that was commonly used in the Padi, And that actually um, translates to cave. Well, we can say something about the cave with the nose, but basically the cave would be the nostrils, the mouth, the throat, all the way down into the lungs, just like um, uh, some mammoth caves have got an entrance. And then they've got some tunnel and then the cave opens into a real cathedral kind of place. Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico is like that. And the new one that they found in um, uh, Vietnam is remarkably this way. So you can think of actually the way that caves operate. The human body operates like that, too. So we actually have more evidence. But where did that cave then gets attached to the nose now there is a good reason for bringing it down to the to the nose tip at a certain period of time in the practice but remember that the anapanasati sutta the way it is constructed is primarily just for first jhana and yet the nose tip can be used to get the mind strongly focused enough to get into the second jhana but i would not recommend the nose tip for the students ever because who needs second jhana when i'm happy i can be just happy enough without second jhana i don't need second jhana sometimes it's there sometimes it's really remarkable to figure out to hey the mind is just not talking <laughs> it's completely silent so that's a, a point about the Vasudhi Maga was that even though Bhikkhu Dasa was in his old age strongly against the book, still the way that he had been teaching on over the years and had written it down in so many places that he still taught out of the Vasudhi Maga. And that's one of the things that I would say that that would be a, a, one of the differences between Bhikkhu Buddha, Buddha, Dasa and myself is, is that I don't ever hardly ever mention about the nose tip. It's not necessary.
3: You never practice that at the nose tip.
0: Well, I know a lot of guys who talk about it. In fact, almost all of the teachers that have been trained under Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa will talk about the nose tip. Sattikara will. I uh, um, um, Dhamma Vitu in uh, his uh, uh, retreat set one. He talks about the nose tip sometimes.
1: So I've the
0: there, so you know what I'm talking about.
4: I, I learned Anapanasati from uh, Thanisara Bhikkhu. And okay. He, he, he kind of. Uh, he kind of say that uh, has to be full bodies. It's very much like your teaching. You have to you have to keep your awareness as a full body, and you have to relax it. And uh, he said that he got it from uh, his teacher's teacher. So his teacher was Ajahn Fong, and Ajahn Fong teacher was Ajahn Lee.
0: Yeah, D Archana Dharma Dhamma Dhamma Dhamma. Yes. Yes.
4: And Ajahn Lee, I mean, it was maybe. At Bhukad, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa time, and he figured it out himself. So he Ajanli never talked about focusing it on the nose, but like uh, trying to trying to bring your awareness uh, in all your body and relaxing it.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think this well,
4: knowledge, this knowledge was there uh, at least in Thailand for very, very long to 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 learn directly from the sutta and not to not to go to the Visuddhimuda. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>
0: well i think that all of thailand is beginning to get that 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 was one of the profound things that bhikkhu buddhadasa had on the entire uh culture of the monks in thailand was to come out of the teachings of the vasudhi and go back into the sutras mm. there there was actually um uh, a, mo- a movement that was almost political Uh, The name of it uh, is anti-asok or santi-asok. It's a big movement in Thailand and that there's some controversy because of its original um, political um, stuff. But it's just one of the groups of, of the monks. And the whole point is, is that we only teach before what happened with asok. Because in the time of Asok, which is about uh, 150 years after the Buddha, uh, because it was a royal patronage, anybody who wanted to become a monk, yeah, they'd get a free monk, they'd get a free robe, they'd get a free bowl, they'd get a free room. And, and so many of the Brahmins became Buddhist monks during that time so that they overwhelmed and overpowered the actual, Sangha of monks who knew what the Buddha actually taught. This is where the division came between the Mahayana or the Mahasangha at the time versus the Hina Sangha or the smaller group of arahats. And so they called a council and the wrong place to have it was in the capital city of Rajgri. They should have had it out in the woods so that none of those new monks could get in. But when they found out about it, they said, well, if you're not going to let us into the old boys club, we're going to have a new boys club because it's going to be a whole lot bigger. A big council of beginners rather than a small council of old established monks. And so that was where that division kind of thing happened. Uh, I mean cool. big. Pardon?
3: Uh, that literally means big, right? Yeah. In, in Pali.
1: Is mm-hmm. that where...
3: Ah, oh, so it's the big council and then the other one means small council. Right? Is that what you, what you said?
0: Right, and there's two words. One is Chula and so you'll have the uh, maha, uh, the, lar- the large sangha uh, of the lion's roar and then there'll be the, the Chula singha, uh or the small lion's roar. I think it's 11 and 12. But there is a lot of sutras that start with the word chula, which means it's a short sutta as opposed to Maha, like the Maha Taba uh, Maha. Uh. The Mahatanga uh, Subhata Suta number one number 38. OK, that's a big one and it's pages and pages long. So the Mahasanga are the what? what mahatat means the great element the great one just like mahatma gandhi maha so the word henna um i have always thought let us say over the years that the word Hinayana was a put down from the westerners who were in tibetan buddhism and that they were trashing the Theravada by calling it the Hinayana. Until I met. Thai monks and Sri Lankan monks, which readily said, yeah, it's the Hinayana. No problem. It's not a derogatory word. At all. Then in fact, here's the point is, is that if you've got a great big, let us, let us use the possibility of a, um, a, a, a cruise liner you know, uh, uh, Carnival Cruise Line, right? And you have to stand in line and pay a fee and board up and they'll feed you well. And they'll take you to places that you don't have any choice over, but you're on their big boat. <laughs> now oppose that to a canoe. You're going to have to paddle the thing yourself, but you can go anywhere you want to. You can shoot right across some lake. And so Um, in, In that regard, everyone has to practice the Hinayana in their own seclusion and their own private practice. But once they begin to make friends in the Sangha, now it becomes the Mahayana. So Theravada has both the Hinayana and the Mahayana. But guess what? The Tibetans also have both the Hinayana and the Mahayana. And so making the distinction is just an ego trip. Oh, we're better than you are because we got a great big boat here. We've got a a carnival cruise liner and all you've got is a canoe. How are you going to get on that cruise liner? I'm going to canoe right up to it. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, there was a great division in the time of Asoka, and that's when so much stuff got added into the teachings of the Buddha. It was fairly pure until that time. That we also know, for instance, that the Dhinga Nikaya wasn't written until the time of Asoka, And that the reason that it was written was that it was sort of a bait and switch of trying to get the Brahmins to come out of their Hindu Brahmanism and come into the teachings of the Buddha, but the doorway has to be marked magic. And when you, when you uh, uh, write magic over the top of the door, a whole lot of people are gonna come into Buddhism and then they find out that, the, um, that there was a subterfuge there, that this door is actually the door to reality. It's just got the label magic on it. And so that's where a lot of people come into the teaching of the Buddha. The question is, do they ever figure out that the teachings of the Buddha is not magical? It's real. It's real. Why? Because it's this mind that we don't have to untangle it. Magical thinking is is that, oh, I have to untangle all of this stuff. And the noble part, the real part is, no, you don't have to untangle that mess. Just sit it down. It's not important. Just sit down right beside it. Go to sleep already. Enjoy your life. Stop trying to fix things that you think are broken. Or let your sleeping dog lie. Don't go around kicking your dog. And so this is the real teaching of the Buddha and that we all start into buddhism from our own magical thinking everybody's got magical thinking the number one magical thought that people have is who can i get to help me come out of my misery and suffering i need a doctor i need a psychologist i need a guru i need a all i need a cathedral i need all kinds of things and the reality is is that ain't none of that stuff going to help you you're going to have to do it yourself And so the next point is, is that, well, can I do it myself? The magical thinking is, oh, no, I can't do it by myself. I'm too stuffed up. My childhood was too miserable. I've got too much PSD. I mean, that birth canal was quite a trip and I never got (laughs) over it. (laughs) And so this is the way that we normally have the magical thinking. But the reality is, is that every one of us can clean out our own mind and nobody else can do that for you no one can clean out your mind only you can do that and you can only do that when you remember to do it and so that's the whole practice right there and the this is all about the doubt so we have that first level of doubt is who's going to do this for me the second level of doubt is am i up to the task the third level of doubt is, is that now for sure, because we've been practicing that we know for a fact that the eightfold noble path and the four noble truths works beyond a, doubt, a shadow of a doubt. This stuff works. And it is stated in the Suta uh, number 24 knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path knowledge and vision of what is the path is real what's not the path is all of our magical thinking and so that's the um the way that we approach it is is that we have to recognize that we can't figure it out there's no reason to figure it out i mean look how much time and effort the astronomers have I mean, starting with uh, Copernicus and then Galileo and telescopes, and you've got radio telescopes, and you've got um, great big mountain telescopes. Mountain Polymer, in fact, was a very famous scope because uh, Mount Whit- uh, Whitmore, which was in central California, they, they got too much light pollution. So they built what uh, the, the polymer, which, by the way, is very close to Watt Meta. That's how desperate out in the wilderness of what META is, is because it's out there where Mount Polymer Guess what? Mount Polymer, they can't use it much anymore because now there's still too much light pollution. So we get a tumble, and then we get a James Webb. and there's just no end to it. And guess what? All we need to do is to look up and marvel at how nice the sky is. We don't need any telescopes to do that we don't need astronomy we don't need astrology all we need is to just sit down and be happy let us stay ignorant of all of that stuff and figure out what needs to be known and the only thing that needs to be known is hey I can remember to wake up to take a look to make a change and congratulate myself and we keep doing that and we get that into that state called the first jhana that's accompanied by uh, happiness, sukha, pity, and is free from the hindrances. And we keep applying and sustaining and applying and sustaining. That's the teaching of the Buddha. We don't need to concentrate on the nose tip, but it's handy if we're going into the higher jhanas. But the higher jhanas are, let us say, something like time structuring you see in the time of the buddha unlike now in those days they didn't have television they didn't have radio they didn't have cell phones they didn't have newspapers they didn't even have writing they didn't have electricity they didn't have cars to ride around with them if you didn't have any of that stuff how miserable would your life actually be it would be quite
3: good it would suck for a while but then it would probably get much better
0: I didn't catch that. Say again.
3: Uh, Yeah, computers and, and cars and all that stuff. Like it's a lot of fun, but it also. I think for a person living in the time of the Buddha, it would be much easier to go and retreat than for a person nowadays because we're used to so much stimulation.
0: Exactly, exactly. You know, there is a sutta. That we'll we can end with. Um well, it's it's in the eighties. I think it's maybe eighty-two. And the story is about deer uh will go and eat the food that is part of the trap that the hunter sets out. And foolish people will go and eat the food and uh in the time of the buddha the way that this is stated it's not attracted in snares like a um uh, a bear trap where you step on it and then it's caught you but rather it's uh the the food is laced with chemicals so that the deer become drowsy and are easy then to catch and so then the next statement is is that well there's going to be a few um Uh, a new herd of um deer that are going to see that and not eat that food but they still hang around it Mm -hmm. and because they hang around it uh the um deer hunter can still catch them and that the point is is that we need to get as far away from that poison food as possible Because the further away we are from it, the less effect it will have on us. Now, in the time of the Buddha, they didn't have hardly any distractions. Basically, the only thing that they need to do is just take a hike, go into the woods, and nothing's really changed except that you're not around other people. And so now you can begin to practice. Westerners are weighted down and laden up. And I would say that the biggest burden that we carry is a clock. Time is money. Look at the clock. You can't be happy now because look at the time. Look at what's going on with the time. I mean, you got work to do. You got a hip two, three, four. You got to go do it. Okay, so that's part of it. And the other part of it is, is that look how many tools that we have that help us with time structuring that didn't happen in the time of the Buddha. And so in the time of the Buddha, it was fairly easy to stay away from the things that are actually dangerous, that are poison. That in fact, um, will make us drowsy with desire and wanting things. Cell phones, porn, all kinds of stuff on the internet. I mean, MSNBC and Fox and CNN. they're poisoning your mind on a regular basis if you watch the news every one of them's got their own point of view and they want you to have their point of view which means that they're poisoning your mind so another example of that is someone who is on a diet if they go to the grocery store and they avoid buying the donuts avoid buying the sugar avoid buying this that and the other thing then when they come home they put the groceries that they bought away now tonight i sneak in there i want a donut no donuts in the refrigerator i can't have a donut it's not here why i've secluded myself from donuts get away from donuts as far as you can if you want to be on a diet don't have donuts in the house if you're trying to quit smoking don't have cigarettes in the house <laughs> If you want irrelevant. to practice anapanasati, don't have any computers or laptops in the house. Why? Because they will distract you, just like the the, uh, the food. So this is, this is one of the main differences between uh, modern times, is that we've got so many more uh, poison piles of um, uh, entrapping goodies. And so it's good to get away from that. Good to go on retreat. Good to go to a place where they don't have donuts under your mattress.
3: The what I was staying at actually had like a seven eleven kind of shop inside the Watt. And every day was I was like, Oh, I'm not gonna go in there. I'm not <laughs> I'm not gonna have a brownie or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. But
3: quite often I would fail and uh Now I'm wondering, like, is it a good thing that they have such a shop? Because on the one hand, it kind of keeps me going, because when I feel really bad, at least I can get something to eat.
0: All right, the answer is, is that when you go into 7-Eleven, you must seclude yourself from the unwholesome things and buy the wholesome things. And I imagine that a 7-Eleven inside of a Watt would have a whole lot of watt-related stuff, and not have so much of the garbage that would be in other 7-Elevens. There's a lot of
3: garbage in there.
0: <laughs> Pardon? Got a lot of stuff in there, huh? In fact, I don't. A lot of garbage. A lot of garbage. Okay, so that means that you're going to have to keep yourself secluded from that stuff as best you can, even when it's right in front of you. In fact, it may be in your grocery basket. Can you seclude yourself by putting it back onto the shelf? and only buy the stuff that's wholesome and not buy unwholesome stuff That we could seclude ourselves from the unwholesome. We can do like the 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 teaching of the of of the deer is to stay away from the things that are unwholesome, because the closer we are to them, the more likely we are to jump right in on it. And also look at the way that we structure our time. How do you spend your time? Do you spend your time looking for something to do, looking for entertainment, or do you spend your time being very happy that you don't have to have any entertainment? You could just sit here just, ah, this is so nice. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to turn that cell phone on. I could just sit here and enjoy the moment.
3: Both, I guess depending on the time and sometimes it's quite subtle because I will start watching like a Dhamma talk on my phone Um, but then I'm thinking uh, do I actually uh, am I actually learning about the Dhamma or do I just want to have something to watch so sometimes it's quite subtle.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes there's a whole lot of stuff that appears one way We've been taught that it's that way, and in fact, the reality is is that it's upside down. It needs to be turned over. An example of that would be a a, a timepiece that has the sand, you know, that it's got an hour, I think they call it an hourglass, all right? Okay, most of the hourglasses can only tell time when you turn it over upside down. Most of the time pieces, most of them though, have all the sand in the bottom and it's not telling time. And that's just how they are and people don't bother to say, let a minute, let's turn this thing upside down. Okay, so this is the way that we can think of the mind too, that we can turn the mind upside down just by remembering that we can turn it upside down. We don't have to figure things out. We don't have to go get what we want. We can just sit here and be happy instead. Now that's quite turning it around, then I'm already okay. I don't need that donut. I don't need whatever it is that I'm in 7-Eleven to buy. And so we can begin to recognize that, wait a minute, that teaching about the deer, let's stay as far away from the sensual desires as we can because then the hunter can't catch us. The hunter doesn't know where we are because we're not around the bait. That's real freedom. Hang around that bait is dangerous. And hunter is uh,
4: hindrance in this example. Pardon? the
0: hunter is a hindrances in this example right exactly the hunter here is myra it's the world it's the hindrances it's the unwholesome thoughts it's, it's an analogy for that hunter and that uh, uh the hunter is not out to do the deer any good at all the 7-eleven is not out to do you good Daniel. It's not there to help you. It's there for its own business to trap you to get your money. to get your desire. In fact, that 711 wants you and everybody else in that wad in that store buying stuff. That's what they want. And the same thing with the news organizations that we have to be careful about what we listen to. Because everything's got its own agenda, everything out there is that hunter
1: and it's better to stay
0: away from the uh, the poisoned uh, uh, bait that is set out for us. Now there's one more sutta in there and that is the sutta about Rahula where Rahula was caught telling a lie Because Rahula, the son of the Buddha, I think that he was really quite young then, probably still under the age of 10 years old, and he went out for the afternoon to the store. He went to the supermarket. And while he was there, some of the monks saw him and come back and tell his daddy. And then Rahula gets confronted by it, and he lies to said, oh, I wasn't out there, I, w- I didn't go to that department store, oh, I wasn't in that 7-Eleven. But in our case, the, the the point is, is that the 7-Eleven it wa- itself was unwholesome for Rahula, and he knew it, that's why he was lying about it. If he didn't see anything wrong with being in the 7 he said, Yeah, Papa was in there. I bought all kinds of things. You wouldn't believe how much money I had in there. But no, he didn't say that. He lied about it. And so the Buddha gave him quite a lesson about lying. That's when he talks about um, cleaning his bowl. And, and then he says that, that a liar is not even worth the, the, the droppings that come out of a dirty bowl. And then he throws the stuff into the into the garbage and he says a liar is like this garbage not worth being around. But the point was in the beginning is is that Rahula was not where he was supposed to be. If you think about it that way that in fact it's not a matter of supposed to. It was the fact that he was in a dangerous place. And he could not see the danger. Until he was confronted with it, and then he lies about it. So, you can also do that for yourself, too. Is to figure out when you're actually there rubbing that poisoned bait all over your face about to take a great big bite of it. You say, wait a minute, is this dangerous or what? And then we don't have to eat into it.
3: Well, then I usually see that it's dangerous and then I take it anyway.
0: Right, <laughs> that's what we do is we see the danger, but we don't really see the danger that we lie to ourselves about it. Yeah, yeah it's not that dangerous. I'll get away with it. And that, yeah, you try
1: really, to- <laughs> I can convince
3: myself not to do it, but then the thought keeps coming back and back and back. And then eventually I'm like, okay, (laughs) I'll just get it.
0: Right. This is why we have to practice over and over and over again is because that poisoned meat looks delightful to us until we begin to see, wait a minute, it causes heedlessness. I'm not really watching what I'm doing. I can't tell the difference between what's wholesome and unwholesome. And when we keep practicing that way, we begin to see, wait a minute, that's unwholesome let's stay away from it let's get secluded from it let's put some distance there let's not
1: have those donuts in our refrigerator
0: so does anybody else have anything I think this is a good time to stop. What do you think, Martin? Is this have you gotten something out of this talk today?
4: Yeah, it was great. Thank you and uh that's that's important I think that we we apply what we read and uh, what we see in the sutta to what we do uh, in our daily life. And so uh, it's very great to be around people that are uh, that are having the same uh, Objective and uh, that are uh, willing to to share even their mistake. So that's that's great.
0: Thank you all. <laughs> Excellent. Mm-hmm. DJ, I'm really glad to see you again. Yeah, I've been was... getting a good report from your uh, work on Saturday. Thank you.
2: Yeah, it's, it's been a joy. <laughs> it's a joy showing up here too. I'm glad to see you. Glad
0: so, see does anybody you. else have anything to say?
1: Emirate, mm-hmm. how about you? Uh,
4: thanks a lot. I got a lot from today's teaching, and I will try to apply it now. <clears> Excellent. <laughs> thank you.
0: <laughs> All right. Daniel, we'll see you later
3: just uh, one question what what is the name of the temple again that Ch- you what chulamani something like that
0: what temple name
3: um the in india he uh, came from a Wat in bangkok it was co- what was the
0: name again oh, the, the one that i was talking about wat chula Patan in nornbury wat chula Patan. okay there's that word chula, chula. small okay right chula patan which you can thank see you, maybe you could translate it as the what that has a little wisdom
3: Oh, thank take that.
0: all right guys all right
1: we'll thank you so you. much
0: thank you
1: all right okay bye-bye, bye-bye.